Okay, so again, we are considering the doctrine of God's providence, um, which encompasses His preservation, His government, and concurrence. Concurrence we began studying last week, the idea of secondary causes or concurrent causation, that God is at work in His creation, that He has a real effect as He moves and, and works and acts in His creation. Um, he is the first and primary cause. Yet that does not de- uh, negate the causation, the real agency of His creatures. He endowed us with a nature to move and to act, to affect one another. He gave us even the command to exercise dominion over creation. So certainly He expects us and has created us to have uh, agency and to have causes. Um, there, is, there is free will, uh, but it is not independent. It is subordinate to God's uh, sovereignty. That's what we began looking at uh, last week. And again, I'm just going to read sections 2 and 3 of the confession here in chapter 5. And then quickly uh, summarize what we studied last week uh, before we conclude the, uh, this lesson real quick. So section 2 of chapter 5 of the Confession of Faith says, Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, yet by the same providence he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. And then section 3, God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. So last week we looked at uh, the first three points of doctrine that we learned from the confession here. Um, First, that as the execution of an eternal and sovereign purpose, God's providential control is in the case of every being and event certainly efficacious. Again, the idea that we've discussed and mentioned many times, God's eternal decree. Uh, What He decrees to come to pass will certainly come to pass. Just as at creation, uh, so in His providence at work uh, at at all times, uh, it is certainly efficacious. And second, that the manner in which He controls His creatures and their actions, the manner in which He exercises His government, and effects His purposes through them, is in every case perfectly consistent with the nature of the creature and of His action. This is really the idea of concurrence, that he's not uh, superseding, uh, he's not eradicating the nature that he uh, created all things with. Um, It is consistent. His his ordinary providence works consistently with his creation. And third, that God ordinarily affects his purposes through means, that is, through the agency of second causes subject to his control. So he does not ordinarily use his direct power to accomplish things. Ordinarily, God works through things. Um, Yet again, we we dismiss the idea of pantheism that says that all things are God. Um, We we reject that. God uses things, uses means, uh, yet he uh, exercises his control um, through the subordinate causes or means. Uh, And finally here, we're going to look at um, quickly... The fourth point of doctrine here, um, but that he, God, possesses and at times at his sovereign pleasure exercises the power of effecting his purpose immediately by the direct energy of his power. We certainly see this throughout scriptures in God's many miraculous works of judgment, 
of healing or displays of power. We think about Sodom and Gomorrah, judgment, fire raining down from heaven. We think about um, the Red Sea, God parting the Red Sea um, using His direct power, uh, miraculous power. And often we see that going against or contrary to the ordinary laws or patterns of nature. I think the Red Sea is a great example that um, there, there was water there. God parted it in ways that water does not ordinarily do. And the people walked across on dry land. Um, there are some who attempt to argue that miracles disprove either God's power over His creation or the perfection of His will. The idea being that a miracle is only necessary because something went wrong. God missed something. God overlooked something. And so he needs to overcome his creation um, through some uh, extraordinary work, through a miracle, to correct things. Uh, We don't believe that that's the case at all. I think we can agree um, that with our understanding of God, especially all the things that we've seen so far in this study, this is a, a, a rather silly idea. There's absolutely nothing inconsistent um, in saying that the same divine will can work both through nature using means or second causes or directly by the use of miracles. Another way to state the truth of this claim is to say that God has the power to execute his purposes without the use or intervention of second causes. And if we deny that, if we say that he can't use second causes, um, that he doesn't both use them for his purposes or even at times uh, exercise his uh, supreme power by overruling uh, or ruling over them. If we deny that, then we are denying uh, the power and the sovereignty of God uh, that is plain in Scripture. And again, nothing could be more plain from Scripture than that God does have and use uh, the power of Scripture, or the power, uh, His own power, over second causes, over His creation. Hosea one seven says this: Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah, will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword or battle, by horses or horsemen. God declaring His intent to save them by His own power, not by means or second causes. In 2 Kings uh, chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, God causes an iron axe head to float in the Jordan River. Uh, he, he does miraculous things that demonstrate His power. I want to read uh, Joshua. This is one of the most baffling to me and, and mysterious passages in Joshua chapter 10. Uh, verses 12 through 15, as, as um, the people of Israel are fighting uh, against the five kings of the Amorites, it says this, Joshua 10, verses 12 through 14. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun stands still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? 
So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there has been no day like that, before it or after it, that the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. God suspended the sun in the sky to give His people time to complete the judgment against the Amorites, to complete their victory over the Amorites. And beyond that, again, talking about God working without means, without second causes, exercising His energy, His power directly. Does God not move in the hearts of all His elect? In the hearts of the saints to bring them to salvation? Regenerating us by the direct power, the direct energy of His Holy Spirit and implanting faith into our hearts? Nothing could be more contrary to natural law than that. And yet God is pleased to do so. And that is our hope. That is the promise of Scripture. And so that concludes um, last week's lesson discussing sections 2 and 3 of Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5. And now we're going to move into um, section 4. Before we do, I want to read Job. This is going to be chapter... Again, I apologize. I I misplaced a couple of pages of notes. I'm having to remember. Okay, Job chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. Um, And the reason I'm reading this, we are getting into what I would describe as, uh, this is where all the roads of, of difficulty with the doctrine of concurrence of second causes, and God's power, where, where God's sovereignty, His power, His government, meet man's responsibility. Where all the roads of question, of, of uh, doubt, lead, is here. God's use uh, of, of wickedness. Um, how uh, wickedness and evil and sin work in the context of God's creation. How He uses them to His purposes. Where all of our questions ultimately come is here, in this doctrine. Um, and so again, I want to reiterate some of the things that I said last week about just, our, we want to receive from Scripture uh, in faith what it says, because it is what God says. And it will not resolve every question in our minds, most likely, um, and yet we want to exercise faith and not philosophy, not trying to construct a God after our own image, a God that fits into our minds, uh, we want to uh, hold loosely our own ideas, uh, testing them against, against Scripture. Uh, and so I, I read this as, uh, as God shows up in Job uh, to answer. There has been much debate throughout 39 chapters of Job. Uh, much debate about who God is, what He is doing amongst Job and his three friends. Uh, four, counting um, Elihu, I think it is. Um, And so this is what it says in Job chapter 40. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. 
Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. That is the humility I I think that we should have as we uh, deal with these things. Um, And so I want to read section 4 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5. Um, And that's in your handout there. Again, uh, these coming from uh, A.A. Hodge's um, commentary on the Westminster Confession. Section 4 says this, The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in His providence that it extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men, and that not by a bare permission, but such as hath joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding, and otherwise ordering and governing of them, in a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends. Yet so as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creature, and not from God, who, being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. And I'm just going to read here what uh, Hodge says and what's printed in the handout. Um, that this section makes no attempt to explain the nature of those providential actions of God, which are concerned in the origin of sin, in the moral universe, and in the control of the sinful actions of His creatures, in the execution of His purposes. It simply states the important facts with respect to the relation of His providence to the sins of His creatures, which are revealed in Scripture. Uh, We see that God, uh, by His eternal decree, orders and decrees all things. All things come to pass according to what God ordains. We see from Scripture that sin entered the world. And so we understand by those things that by God's decree, sin entered the world. And yet we also see in Scripture that God is most holy and no sin can be accounted to Him. How do we wrestle with these things? Uh, Scripture is is silent on many of the details, uh, exactly how it occurs, and yet it declares it to be true. Um, And so this actually is the the section that is, uh, in this section, um, Hodge's commentary is the shortest. It's about a full page, um, just stating what is true in Scripture um, with some proof texts. Um, And so, you know, we're not going to belabor things Um, But I'm going to draw from Hodge and also from some of the things that John Calvin says in in his institutes. um, And we're going to discuss some of these ideas. So first, God not only permits sinful acts, but he directs and controls them to the determination of his own purposes. Um, And here's where my notes would have come in handy. And I'm missing them because my printer ran out of paper. So I apologize. Um, but where I, where I want to focus uh, this, this discussion uh, is the idea that he not only permits sinful actions, but he directs and controls them. So the idea, many men have, have wrestled with this idea and said, well, God cannot cause wickedness and evil. God cannot be the author of sin. And so he must only approve of, he, he must only um, permit sin, not approve, but permit uh, by bare permission in the language of the confession. Um, by his bare permission. So it's a negative. God doesn't move to restrain 
And so it happens. Uh, and then God deals with it from there, I suppose. Um, and so it's the idea that, that maybe he does not decree wicked acts, but he merely allows them to happen. Uh, in other words, um, again, it's by bare permission, not by a positive decree of God. And so let's examine that. His bare permission versus the decree of God. We've already seen, again, that God does whatsoever He wills. Scripture declares that. And that His supreme government extends to every part of His creation without exception. To the great, both to the great and small in His creation. Again, chapter 3 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, God's eternal decree deals with that idea. Uh, In Job chapter 23... Verse 13, uh, God says uh, through his word that he is unique and who can make him change? Whatever his soul desires, that he does. Psalm 115.4, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Isaiah 14.27, for the Lord of hosts has purposed and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out and who can turn it back? So we want to examine, we see that he does whatever he wills. And so ultimately it's, it's another question of deism. Is there a point at which God's sovereignty, his control, his active power, his active providence stops? Is there a line where God says, I will not act? And that line in this case would be the wickedness and sin of men. Does God say that's an area I do not touch? Does he uh, uh, create all things? And go into the garden and discover uh, that Adam and Eve, because he did not restrain them, have sinned? Is that what we are to believe from Scripture? Does God's sovereign control extend even to the most vile actions, the darkest hearts, and the most depraved will of rebellious creatures? Namely, fallen angels and man in his sin. And we will find, along with the confession, that the answer from Scripture is an emphatic yes. God's sovereignty and His control does extend to every part of His creation. Let's look at a few examples from Scripture to see. Again, these these are just examples. It doesn't explicitly say how this happens. But it it declares to us uh, many examples. In Job, uh, chapter 1, again, lots in Job. Job has been described um, as the book of God's providence. There's much to consider there. In chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Satan presents himself before God to receive his commands. Satan is subject to God, God's control. Again, in in chapter 2 of Job, excuse me, in verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. It says it twice in Job. And yet we see later in Job, along with Job, that Satan and the wicked men who afflicted Job, stealing and murdering, were acting as God's ministers. Job declares uh, in chapter 1, verse 21, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job does not ascribe the actions to to Satan and to wicked men alone. He says that God has done this. And all of Job is about wrestling with why. Why did God do this? To Job, who 
who estimated himself and who was, uh, even by God's account, a righteous man. In 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 19 through 23. This is dealing with uh, uh, during the reign of King Ahab. And the prophet Micaiah uh, comes to Ahab. Then Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on His throne, and all the hosts of heaven standing by, on His right hand and on His left. And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab to go up, that he may fall at Ramoth-Gilead? So one stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. The Lord said to him, In what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, You shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. Therefore, look, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours, and the Lord has declared disaster against you. The Lord wills and commands a lying spirit to deceive wicked King Ahab to go to his death in battle. I'm going to read something from from John Calvin. John Calvin says, uh, says it this way, God wills that the false king Ahab be deceived. The devil offers his services to this end. He is sent with a definite command to be a lying spirit in the mouth of all the prophets. If the blinding and insanity of Ahab be God's judgment, then the figment of bare permission vanishes. Because it would be ridiculous for the judge not only to permit what he wills to be done and not also to decree it and to command its execution by his ministers. Again, the idea, uh, wrestling with the idea of bare permission uh, versus the decree of God. Did, does God just permit these things to happen? Uh, if so, is, that, is it unfair of God to judge when the things that, um, that he decrees to happen take place? If God decrees wicked things to happen and yet judges... Is that unfair? Many men have wrestled with this idea. And Calvin says, from Scripture, observing that this would undo God's sovereignty. Can the judge not ordain what is to be and command it and cause it to come to pass by his ministers? More examples. In 2 Samuel 16, Absalom commits a detestable crime with his father David's concubines. In the sight of all Israel. Yet God declares this act to be at his decree. And in fulfillment of his judgment against David for a similar crime with Bathsheba. Saying a few chapters earlier in 2 Samuel 12. You did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and in broad daylight. And I want to read what I think is really the culmination of this idea. Wrestling with the idea that that God sent His own Son to die. Well, if God sent His own Son to die, 
then men were going to kill him. God decreed men to kill his own son. And I think this really is the culmination of, of this idea. Uh, the most shocking and, and um, potentially disturbing idea that, that our, our salvation came by God fulfilling his decree to send a, a sacrifice on our behalf. And by the same token, God declared that men uh, and decreed that men uh, would kill the Christ, would kill uh, Jesus. And so a series of of, uh, verses here. How did the apostles themselves wrestle with this idea? They didn't wrestle at all. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. This is Peter in his sermon at Pentecost. Man of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Peter declares there that God predestined and determined uh, Christ to come and die. And yet holds the men of Israel, the Jews, accountable for doing so. Again, in chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Again, this is Peter preaching after healing a lame man. says this, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And His name, through faith in His name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through Him has given Him this perfect soundness in the presence of all. Yet now, excuse me, now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I went one verse further to, uh, again. These men are held accountable for their own actions, their own sin. This is a mysterious thing, but we see that the apostles did not wrestle with it. And even in their prayer, in a prayer to God in chapter 4, verses 27 through 28, the apostles say this, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. The wickedness of the Jews in murdering Christ was acknowledged by the apostles to be the carrying out of whatever God's hand and God's purpose determined before to be done. Indeed, Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, is given over to Satan, and Jesus himself tells Judas, what you do, do quickly. Whether commanding Judas or Satan, I don't know. But Jesus commands what you do, do quickly. 
Many other examples in Scripture, and I'm just going to run through some of these quickly. David acknowledges the cursing of Shimei to be at the Lord's command in 2 Samuel 16. Jeremiah declares that the cruelty of the Chaldeans against Judah was God's work. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is called God's servant. God calls the Assyrians the rod of his anger. God declares that he arouses wicked men to war by his own actions in Isaiah, Hosea, Zephaniah. So in the plain light of Scripture, we can confess with the confession that God exercises His power. God extends His providence even to the first fall of Adam and Eve and all other sins of angels and men. And that not by a bare permission, but by His positive decree, such as as the confession says, such as hath joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding, and otherwise ordering and governing of them, and a manifold or manyfold dispensation to his own holy ends. His holy ends. Now there are many blasphemous objections raised by men who do not understand this doctrine or choose to reject it. Um, And those are different. Uh, Not understanding uh, is not the same as choosing to reject it. We cannot understand things fully that Scripture declares to us, and yet we can accept it with faith, trusting that what God's Word says is true. And yet we are not to reject it. Uh, But many men do. They say that if if nothing happens apart from God's will, then He is decreeing what He has forbidden by His law. Thus, there are in God two contrary wills. On one hand, He is uh, uh, proscribing or uh, forbidding things in His law. And yet, if he is decreeing these things to come to pass, is that not two contrary wills? Their answer to this is a return to deism, an attempt to protect the unity of God's will, or to save God from the stain of sin by removing God's power from a part of his creation. They say, he must not be acting where there is any sin. He must not be decreeing it. He must just be allowing it. He's not going to intervene. But does does this not result in a false doctrine that man's will ultimately is greater than God's? If he cannot or will not overcome man's will, then is not man's will, practically speaking, greater than God's according to this doctrine? And a claim that where sin acts, God is powerless. This is... A blasphemous accusation and a rejection of what Scripture plainly teaches, as we've seen. I want to read again from John Calvin, who says this. Because God's wisdom appears uh, manifold, or multiform, as the old translator renders it, Ought we, therefore, on account of the sluggishness of our understanding, to dream that there is any variation in God himself, as if he either may change his plan or disagree with himself? Rather, when we do not grasp how God wills to take place what he forbids to be done, let us recall our mental incapacity, and at the same time consider that the light in which God dwells is not without reason called unapproachable, because it is overspread 
with darkness. God appears in darkness, in cloud, shrouded in mystery. Uh, He is incomprehensible. Let us remember that as we wrestle with some of these truths. And with just a few minutes, I do want to see if I can get through. Um, The second objection that may be raised that uh, says that if God is in control and ordains sinful action, he must be the author and the cause of sin. Uh, Brings us to the second point of doctrine from this section of the, the confession of faith. That says, yet the sinfulness of these actions is not only from the, excuse me, is, is only from the sinning agent. And God in no case is either the author or approver of sin. The providence of God, instead of causing or approving sin, we see in Scripture that God is constantly concerned with forbidding sin by positive law, by discouraging it, by threatenings and actual punishments. In all of the covenants, we saw this uh, as Pastor Sharp preached through Leviticus and, and Exodus. The covenants of God come with curses and promises. Uh, we, are, we are threatened uh, and when we see punishments in Scripture when men transgress. Uh, God restrains sin and overrules it to His own nature uh, for His good. And we are explicitly told in Scripture that God is holy and not the author of sin. There's a few here, but I want to read in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 14 and 17. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. In verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. That even answering the idea that there are contrary wills in God. There are not. God's purposes and will is one. Uh, Evil does not come from Him. Temptation does not come from Him. It is from the wickedness of the creature. Again, considering uh, the, the supreme holiness of God, And if we understand the depths of our sin and depravity, we can see and begin to unfold the idea that it comes from us. Romans 1 makes it abundantly clear that sinful man is given over to the sinfulness of his own heart. God's holiness is declared all throughout Scripture. So I would submit to you, and I think I can say this with the confidence from Scripture, from what we have seen, That man in sin is given over by God to the sin in his own heart, turned over to evil passions and rebellious impulses that enslave him. Yet God in his supreme power nevertheless rules over and overrules the wicked designs of Satan and all his servants, including man. God sets the channel in which the wicked act, restraining evil always from its fullest consummation. God also who formed man and gave to him the breath of life knows the wicked heart how to provoke it into following its own slavish impulses. Why? Because God delights in sin? May we never think such blasphemy in our hearts. Rather, as with Satan tempting Adam and Eve to rebellion in the garden, 
as with Pharaoh and the Egyptians who oppressed Israel, whose heart God hardened, as with Satan attempting to provoke a man of God in Job, as with Judas Iscariot and the creatures uh, and the Jews who murdered the Christ, God everywhere displays and shows the utter futility of the creature's attempt to rebel and throw off the yoke of its creator. God is everywhere manifesting the totality and completeness of his great providence. That, I think, from Scripture is the best answer that we have, that God uses these things. Uh, One of the things I was going to read, and left it out of my notes, because my notes got lost. Um, In Exodus, God says that he hardens Pharaoh's heart And the purpose that he declares is so that Israel will know that he is God. God hardens the heart of Pharaoh, oppressing and afflicting his people, uh, as as Pharaoh does these things to God's people. And God declares that he does so to manifest and display his power. And what do we see in Exodus chapter 20, as God gives the law, the very foundation of that relationship is the covenantal power and love of God. That God uh, bases... The, the Israelites' obedience, he says in, in uh, preceding the law, I am the God who delivered you out of Egypt, brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So God hardens Pharaoh's heart to display his power, and that power is the basis and foundation of our obedience. That is far from God approving of sin. Rather, God is overruling and ruling over even the wickedness and rebellion to show that he is God. And so that we might be encouraged uh, all the more to obey Him. So we're, we're out of time here. So I just want to summarize. Um, well, we might have to get into a little bit more to wrap up again next week. But I want to read quickly. No, actually, I'm going to save that for next week. Sorry, on the fly, adjusting things. Um, we'll, we'll leave it there. Uh, let us be encouraged that God is in control of all his, of his creation. And if even the, wicked, the most wicked acts of man uh, cannot overcome or overthrow God's power, much less can, can any uh, affliction on his church, much less can any annoyance that we experience, uh, any things in our lives that go awry, go astray, go not according to our plan, How much more should we be encouraged that we are held in the hands of our Father uh, who exercises His fatherly care, His providence in our lives. Uh, And and that should not cause us to doubt as many uh, take these doctrines uh, as license to doubt and to disobey. Instead, let us be spurred on to a greater obedience and faith in God's work, in His power, and His sovereignty. So with that, I'll pray to conclude us. Heavenly Father, we affirm and declare with Scripture that you are God. Meaning that you are sovereign over all things. Your power is manifest all throughout Scripture, all throughout your creation, and even in our own lives. And how much more than when you rescued us out of our enslavement to sin by directly working and implanting your spirit and faith that you might save us by your hand and not by any work that we could do. And so we humble ourselves and ask that you would grant to us a greater measure of faith to receive these things um, and and to worship you as you uh, ought to be worshipped. And as we turn our hearts toward corporate worship with your people, 
uh, let us uh, in humility uh, and, and in faith uh, gather together, worshiping, receiving your word, uh, and singing your praises. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.